I V M. ทุกคนก็จะพิสูจน์ตัวเองได้เสียสุดเบสแมネจเมนต์สเปเชียลไอ้บอลเลสออนดูคัฟเวอร์ดิสท็อปิกแอนด์ไฟนัลลี่ไ
to take case take care of any contingency that may you know come upon us as you know life is uncertain the world is uncertain uh, but having prepared for these contingencies give you peace of mind and then finally you know we we ask this question a lot to our clients that uh, okay what will happen if the biggest contingency uh, you get hit with which is let's say if you are not there tomorrow uh, do you think your family will be able to sustain the lifestyle um uh, that they that you have created uh, that you have worked very hard to create right and and i'm i'm not talking about insurance i'm talking about financial health of your family that can actually sort of sustain itself uh, even after you so you know those are all aspects that go beyond telling you which mutual fund to invest in and which stock to invest in so that in a nutshell i would say what what a wealth manager does or should do uh, which is very similar to um, uh, a doctor for for your health in terms of our target segment uh, anupam we um, we are fairly sort of wide ranging so we do work with uh, very large families in the country because uh, we wanted to not be classified as a mid tier platform if we didn't work with them we could be you know we could run uh, the risk of being classified and you know the complexity that these guys have uh, uh, makes us smarter makes us better so we create a lot of uh, uh, stuff that is relevant to them but we are also in the business of packaging all of that and bringing that down to a more mid tier and a more wider clientele which uh, uh, in our world we call it uh, emerging a high network so you know a lot of uh, young uh, professionals lot of new business owners etc that may not have acquired a lot of wealth yet but uh, the path that they are on because of the age that they are uh, in they would um, they would eventually uh, create a lot of wealth for themselves so we 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 want to obviously start working with them fairly early we also work with a lot of retirees who uh, who have worked uh, all their lives and 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 worked hard to create a corpus and uh, and now with life expectancies where they are they they do need that money to be taken care of and 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 be useful for sustaining their lifestyle uh, you know well into you know post retirement as well as uh, their next generation so so our, our client range is is fairly wide ranging hmm interesting so atul you know you've spent time at merrill lynch you've spent time at julius baer and then you, you would know that outside of india uh, same countries like china taiwan hong kong singapore well management industry is probably quite mature whereas in india i think you know in from what i know it's it's more of a recent phenomenon because i guess uh, serious wealth has been created only in the last uh, 10 to 15 years or not that i would say that wealth has always been created in india but looking upon it as a formal area of advice as a profession is more recent i think that's what i want to say so just walk our listeners through how the wealth management industry has evolved in india say how things were i don't know you know maybe back in the 80s 90s or early 2000s and how it's more organized and more professional now just to give an idea on the quality of advice maybe the range of options that yeah, so our listeners can understand sure. how wealth management really works sure so uh, so anupam you're right that uh, the wealth management industry is a, a new industry in india and it coincides with uh, the first generation entrepreneurs making a lot of money i mean yes the money was there uh, in 80s and 70s as well in india but that was concentrated in few groups uh, few large promoters the in a democratic sense Uh, the wealth with the per capita income uh, uh, you know increasing dramatically in the last 20 years and and the new age business owners uh, you know starting their business and creating a lot of wealth has happened in the last 20 years so uh, it has taken uh, a dramatic sort of proportion in many dimensions 
in the last 20 years. Uh, just before I sort of talk more about it, just as a comparison, sure. as you mentioned in, 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 in Europe and, and the US, uh, the, the wealth management industry is actually entirely different. The, 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 the fabric of the industry is very different. In Europe is a classic third generation, second generation um, uh, wealth management industry. So what it means is that your core clients that you are serving are not the ones that have created wealth in their lifetime, but they have actually, most of the wealth has been passed on by the second or the third generation prior to them, Now, uh, which is Europe. In the US, it's probably more uh, second generation and, and a mix of first generation as well. I mean, a lot of the tech boom is first generation, but a lot of the, the broader wealth is, is still second generation. India, um, potentially similar to China, but India uh, particularly is a first generation story, right? So every, so particularly the clients that you deal with are the ones that have created wealth in their lifetime, right? And, and it, while it may sound subtle, but that's a very, very fundamental difference, the way the wealth is managed. Because in Europe and, and in US, uh, and particularly Europe, because the contrast is the highest with Europe, uh, the focus is on preserving wealth and growing at a moderate pace. Whereas in India, because you are talking to people who have created wealth themselves, the risk appetite uh, for even managing their wealth, because they're, they're sort of continuously running their own business, is still a lot higher and focus is a lot more on growth and investment performance. So that's kind of one big contrast when you think about the, the wealth management industry elsewhere in developed world, particularly, and in India. So India, it's all about uh, growth. It's, it's a lot of it is about uh, investment performance, etc., and also dealing with first generation entrepreneurs. Now, that, that's sort of one dimension in which the industry is different. But in terms of evolution, uh, you're right, the, the first stage uh, in any industry when the industry is less sophisticated is uh, product pushing, right? So, you know, it started with, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the stock tips and the stock trade. I mean, that's what wealth management was, uh, you know, which stock is going to do what and which operator was kind of playing on what stock. Uh, it moved to uh, a bit more, you know, mutual funds came around, etc. So uh, it became a uh, lot of product pushing on certain products with high commissions, etc. Um, a lot of banks uh, uh, do this business or did this business so far because they are good in distribution. They are not good in the business of advice, but they are good in distribution because they have reach, etc. So they, they use their reach to push uh, a lot of products out. Um, and uh, But now we are entering into a, a bit more sophisticated uh, sort of version of wealth management where of course, the inherent complexity in the marketplace has also gone up. So you have uh, advent of, uh, uh, let's say, you know, uh, we call it portfolio management services, PMS, which allows outside a very rigid framework of mutual fund managers have the ability to really, you know, create various strategies. And then now uh, you have AIF, the alternative investment funds, um, where uh, you have uh, ability to take leverage, you can practically, you know, use any asset class to create an investment product out of it, etc. So uh, the on the product dimension, on the level of complexity, uh, the, the industry has evolved from, you know, few stock trading uh, uh, tips, not even advice, but tips to, you know, packaged mutual fund uh, product pushing to, uh, to more PMS and AIF. And now there is enough complexity, uh, Anupam, that uh, there is there is uh, value in overlaying advice on top sure. of the products, right? So the, the the final evolution of the industry is going towards uh, the the value of advice, and um, and, and advice is sort of far reaching. 
So that's the evolution uh, that uh, that we have experienced, and wealth managers become far more valuable when you really reach that uh, that level of evolution where the focus is on 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 advice and not necessarily on products. Yeah, and I'm also sure that the type of assets are also very different, right? I mean, someone who has a fairly large corpus or assets under management could have a lot of land, could have a lot of gold, could yeah. have also have a lot of stocks, and yeah, just necessarily doesn't have to uh, yeah. to be that. So. Yeah. So the last question on this part of 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 the episode is, I want to talk about technology, Atul, right? Because, yeah. um, like you said, since for the last ten years, this field has wealth management has has also evolved. A lot of technology has also come in now. You know, view. Yeah. Uh, so has I don't know how advice was ten years ago to say someone with a fifty crore corpus, and how advice is today to someone with the same same corpus with technology. So are there any Innovative solutions, for example, that have totally transformed the way wealth management firms work. Uh, sure, Anupam, and uh, it, it's a it's a great question. In fact, uh, uh, you know, one of the building blocks for uh, me to found Validus was the premise that technology is highly under leveraged by private banking businesses, private client businesses anywhere around the world. And uh, you know, as we know, technology is changing every aspect of our life, and uh, and delivery of financial advice is not going to be uh, untouched with that. So, um, uh, however, when it comes to uh, high net worth individuals, we believe that technology cannot fully replace the interface with with advisor, because uh, financial advice is a lot about uh, emotions, about empathy with the client, understanding uh, uh, the objectives and 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 the mindset of the client, attitude of the client. So, uh, uh, the advisor will continue to play a critical role. But the advisor can significantly be enabled with technology. So the in 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 a H and I high net worth space, the the real focus of technology will be to 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 use its analytical power, to use its predictive power, access to market data, access to advice to enable the advisor who's sitting in front of the client to to pick and choose um, uh, uh, you know the power of technology to bring it to the client. But uh, we don't believe that the advisor will be fully disintermediated by by technology in any time to come and uh, one of our distinctive business models at validus is combining technology with the power of uh, human or or advisor to bring a high quality you know and high uh, bar service levels uh, or advice levels consistently to the client now where technology will fully intermediate uh, the the interface is uh, maybe at a lower level maybe at a at a mass investing level where if somebody wants to do a a 10,000 20,000 or even a 50,000 rupee uh, sip uh, and wants to really uh, invest in a diversified portfolio of mutual funds and has a particular risk appetite a lot of that you could assess uh, using technology and and help uh, intermediate that at very low cost right so there the what you're solving for is is cost and a reasonable level of advice it's not highly customized uh, but it's it's still good advice but uh, but but managing the cost Whereas at the HNI level, you can't just solve for cost. You do need to really have uh, the software aspects, and hence uh, a, a hybrid model is uh, what is um, beginning to succeed around the world. I mean, the robo advisors, as they are called, uh, again have been successful uh, at the lower end of the market. But as uh, the asset levels grow, uh, a right combination of technology and 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 human is uh, is beginning to be successful. And again, I'd no um, no doubt that. human alone will actually uh, get beaten sort of hands down by human plus technology at that level 
Okay, fantastic. Folks, that is the first half of our episode on the Wealth Management Special with Atul Singh, CEO at Validus Wealth. When we come back, we're going to give you some practical advice, make this really personal to you and how you can use some of, you know, some of best practices from wealth management for your own portfolio. We're going to talk about all of that on the other side of the space. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the Wealth Management Special on Pesa Vesa. My guest, Atul Singh, CEO at Valadis Wealth. On the first part of this episode, we spoke about the concept of wealth management, how it's evolved with technology. In this part, we're going to talk about practical advice to you. Okay, so first off, Atul, this is an important question and I get it a lot from uh, a lot of friends of mine uh, who are just rushing around for advice. You know, so I have to ask you, I mean, just just last week I posted this question on Twitter for financial advice and what stops people from, you know, hiring, say, a, a financial planner and I got a whole long list of answers. But of course, that is a separate set of people. For wealth managers, although I'm sure that, you know, when you're looking for advice, whether it's for a portfolio of, say, 50 crores or if it's for 5 lakhs, there are certain principles that are pretty much the same. So can you just give us some tips and advice on both the sides? One, financial advice in general. How do you get good financial advice? And two, how do you actually choose a good wealth manager for yourself? So Anupam, you know, the the largest or the, the most um, suited client acquisition uh, uh, technique for uh, for financial advisors is using reference now what it means is that you know a good financial advisor always in most cases comes through uh, somebody that you know who has used their services right so it's a it's a very experiential business right so financial advice is not at all about the financial acumen or intelligence of the advisor it takes a lot more than that right in fact uh, you know, we have done, and as I mentioned, I was in the U.S. for a long time and in and, and Singapore, and we have done this research in every market possible, asking this question to clients, what is their biggest driver of satisfaction with their financial advisors? And the single uh, sort of biggest driver has been the reach out or engagement of the financial advisor with the client, right? So when the financial advisor reaches out, you know, especially in the times of volatility, when everything is going going good, you may not need them to reach out, but when things are not looking good, uh, is the financial advisor, does he have the, the, the uh, EQ to actually pick up the phone and engage and say that, hey, you know, I have got your, your, your interest uh, at the center of it and, and things are in control, don't worry, right? Or if some changes need to be made, these are the changes need to be made and these are the reasons why. So that engagement or that reach out is actually the single biggest uh, driver of satisfaction for clients all over the world, right? And financial advisors need to understand that. Now, it's very difficult to judge that when you are really doing a beauty parade of, of financial advisors. And that is why I meant uh, going through the referral way where if you really talk to, and, and again, if somebody is not referring somebody to you, always ask the financial advisor to give you references and do make sure that you talk to uh, three other clients that the financial advisor has served. Because there is no, unfortunately, there is no, uh, empirical evidence that uh, you know you could take a test on 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 the financial acumen or the investment performance that the client that the RM may have developed uh, developed delivered or uh, or the advisor may have delivered. Those are not necessarily the the, the best uh, drivers of the the outcome. So 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 reaching out to uh, other clients that the advisor has served is probably the best way to really make sure 
that uh, you actually um, get together with with the right advisor. So that's as as uh-huh. far as uh, uh, the advisor is concerned. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Obviously, you're doing business because you want uh, better investment performance. But but like I mentioned, that there is risk management. There is also this whole uh, attitude of the advisor who thinks of your money uh, as if he's managing his own money and and. And the love and care he, you know, or she puts in managing your money. So those are all intangibles that are very difficult to judge in any uh, uh, parametric way. So that's why uh, referral works very well uh, in, in our business. Ah, uh, so you know, if I were to make a checklist of questions, maybe top three or top four or top five or whatever, you know, what kind of questions should you be asking your wealth manager before you sign them? Or let's say that I'm actually doing well. Let's not call it a beauty parade. But let's say that, uh, you know, and I've done this with a couple of friends where they've they've asked me that, you know, we need some help, some advice, and we don't really trust asking out in general. And I, you know, I try and help them with some things or some people that I know directly from from, from sure. How would you approach this? You know, what would be a very generalized set of questions that all of us should be asking our wealth managers? Yeah. So I think the, uh, so if you have an investment advisor sitting in front of you and, and if you were, uh, uh, you know, to kind of ask these these set of questions. I think the first question is understanding uh, his or her investment philosophy and strategy. So, you know, just again, how he thinks about managing clients' money. A lot of qualitatives, a lot of subjective uh, uh, assessment there. But just listening to that is um, is very important because, again, like I said, there is you know, the, if somebody to say that look, I will beat the market. Uh, you know, five times out of six or or eight times out of 10 is not necessarily who you're looking for. Very, very important to really know. So uh, understanding the investment philosophy and and strategy, I would would favor an advisor who focuses a lot more on risk management for you than actually return because we always believe return is an outcome of risk. And and what you can modulate is risk. You cannot modulate return. Return is an outcome and and it it will happen based on the risk that you've taken. So, so Understanding that philosophy and strategy is probably, uh, uh, you know, one key aspect. Second aspect uh, I would ask is how would you customize your work or your advice for me? Right. I think it's a very, very good question to ask that. Look, uh, you know, how am I going to be different from, let's say, five other clients that you're serving? Right. And in fact, you should ask the advisor to ask you five questions in assessing how we are different or how I am different. Right. That will immediately tell you. Um, uh, that will immediately tell you how deeply the, the the advisor is, you know, thinking about a particular client in a particular manner. And then the third is, uh, of course, like I said, the type of clients that advisor caters to, and potentially asking for two or three references uh, that you could potentially speak to. So that the, not just giving high level references of, you know, mm-hmm. the who's who of the industry that they serve, but clients that you can actually talk. Right. And then I'm assuming, obviously, the, the education and the qualification and the certification is all taken care of. I mean, that's that's not necessarily one what one has to sort of go. But these are the qualitative factors that will that will help you assess uh, the quality of the advisor, because, like I said, it's a lot to do with the attitude, empathy and, and the soft skills uh, of the advisor uh, as much as it is to do with the hard skills of understanding the markets and the product. Understood. OK, let's get some, you know, your views on how our listeners should manage their wealth in such difficult times. You know, it's been about seven months. God knows what's going to happen in the future. Uh, there is a certain set of people who were, you know, lucky enough or who were who had the risk profile to jump into the markets back in March and now they would have made whatever they've made. 
But irrespective of that, in general, do you have any tips on how to manage our wealth or maybe an asset allocation just generally in these difficult times? Yeah, so uh, Anupam, I would say that even at a higher level, even even if you sort of pull yourself up one level uh, uh, on on managing the financial life, right? And and I think uh, you know if I go back to March and the peak of the crisis, right? And and there the the level of anxiety was very high, and uh, the it's it's very easy to say that hey you know stick to asset allocation and uh, and you know in the long term the market will do what it has to do and and you will be okay. But when you are hit with extreme uncertainty and 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 when it comes to um, uh, the, your financial life uh, and hence your lifestyle being in jeopardy, then you take uh, decisions that are not necessarily um, uh, you know intellectually correct, right? So I had assumed at that time that the risk appetite for people would go down dramatically because people's risk appetite would go down because every I, I call it negative wealth effect because everybody in the world would feel poorer than what they were before the crisis right and it is true so your business may not be doing as well as 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 it was your real estate the if 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 you have real estate or the, the house that you're living in the prices may have been um, uh, lower than what you thought the stock uh, uh, may be down the stock portfolio may be down uh, you know bond currency so anything that you held uh, would be down so you, there is a negative wealth effect that comes in now the response to that is that you need to uh, my advice to clients is that do take time to think about the assumptions that you made about your future okay before i come to asset allocation just from financial life perspective just sort of step back think about some of the assumptions that you made right because many many assumptions have changed right and uh, and and again the different assumptions would have changed for different people but nobody can say that the assumptions would remain the same uh, for 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 people you know going through such a massive crisis so so think about those so what it leads to is a lot of life planning right a lot of retirement planning right i mean you know i am 45 years old you know even i am compelled to think about uh, my next 20 years going through the crisis i mean how would it be and do i have enough money if you know if everything sort of if my business goes down if my uh, portfolio goes down by 30 40% Uh, do i have enough money to sustain my life uh, uh, family's lifestyle right so lot of retirement planning and and that's actually leading to real actionable points uh, from from the client right so but thinking about that um, uh, is important succession planning right i mean do you if something were to happen to you um, do you think your family will be okay and again i am not talking about insurance i am talking about your financial life is it in a in a place where uh you could you know potentially disappear and 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 your 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 family will be okay and by the way i'm not just throwing these questions there are very very clear answers to each of these but it's very important to take time and think about it and then there is question of uh, so apart from retirement planning succession planning uh, uh cash flow planning there is question of asset allocation and i think asset allocation is something that uh, uh you know is 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 a much abused word uh it's theoretically uh, very easy to understand but it's very very difficult to sort of implement practically but nonetheless you know one has to come back and and think about uh maintaining an asset allocation and if through the crisis if you had maintained your asset allocation if you decided to put 30% in equity 60% in fixed uh, 70% in fixed income you know if equities fell you bought more because you wanted to get back to 30 
Um, and now if, if, if the equities is doing very well and you want to trim that and get back to 30, believe me, that works like a magic over a long period in time. Again, like I said, when you're in, in extreme stress, very difficult to stick to it, but there is no alternative to it. So from an investment core perspective, I would say uh, getting back to your asset allocation is is probably the, the only answer. Don't make uh, knee-jerk reactions unless unless your retirement planning, cash flow planning mandates you to do that, right? So for example, if I have sustained so much damage that my business is gone, my cash flows are gone, that to sustain my, my family's lifestyle, I need to make certain changes in the, my risk appetite is not as much as it, it, it was there. Uh, before the crisis and i mean need to really take the the equity exposure down so so be it, do that but if you're if if your financial planning cash flow planning succession planning all of that kind of you know shows uh uh you know the, the sort of the right frame uh then then stick to the asset allocation that you decided you know make minor changes but don't make wholesome changes unless you have to so that's it's a lot of work the the one advice i would have anupam for for our listeners is don't leave the status quo don't assume that you know you don't want to look at it and 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 everything will be fine in the long term no these are important aspects one has to step back and and think about it uh, deeply times like these uh, are triggers for for when you have to think about it uh, in a lot more urgent fashion okay Atul, so obvious question uh, you know coming from the advice that you gave on asset allocation what's your outlook you know, across maybe across asset categories, across markets over the longer term, because I assume that it, when it comes to wealth, we don't want to know what's going to happen tomorrow or in the next year or, you know, that. But uh, what's your general view on asset by asset outlook over, the, say, the, you know, the medium to, to the longer term, given that we are in this, whatever you call it, downturn or crisis or whatever? Sure. So Anupam, the way uh, we think about asset allocation for any investor, unless I get a specific feedback from the investor where our starting point is uh, uh, what I call one third, one third, one third. So one third in uh, long only equity, one third in long only fixed income, one third, very, very important. One third in what I call market neutral products, which are uncorrelated to equity and fixed income markets, right? So that's kind of our, our starting point. Now, obviously, you overlay the risk appetite and one goes up or goes down, but, but that's sort of our starting point. Now, if I go uh, and I'll talk about what I mean by uncorrelated asset classes or uh, market neutral products, uh, but uh, going sequentially, so so equity, uh, you know, Anupam, India is, is a land of entrepreneurs. Um, you know, there are fantastic companies, uh, you know, taking shape um, every day, uh, being scaled up, etc., India has high inflation uh, and equities is other than real estate. Equities is the only other asset class that is inflation adjusted. So uh, equities continues to be a very, very important asset class for Indian investors. The nominal GDP of the country for the last 20 years, 25 years was 15%. Nominal GDP is a sum of real GDP growth of let's say 7 to 8% plus inflation, which was also 7 to 8%. So uh, the sum of that 15% and uh, we, the, the earnings of the, the companies would appreciate at similar rate to the nominal GDP, which is about 15%. And hence the stock market by and large, barring the, the short term movement, would also give you 15% return, which is the history. Last 20 years, 25 years, um, that's the history. That is changing a little bit. Now, uh, the, the inflation is coming down. 
uh, with the, with the targeting, uh, particularly the, by the monetary uh, authorities, the targeting on on getting the inflation down. So the nominal GDP of the country in the now in the next 10, 15, 20 years is not going to be 15 percent, but it will be more like 10 to 12 percent, right? So I think the the targeted returns on equities uh, one has to really take their expectation down, but still 10 to 12 percent. Uh, compounding on equities as an asset class is uh, is is there is is there to be taken done sensibly you would get that you don't have to be very precise in picking the next multi blagger etc if you have a good quality hygienic um, uh, portfolio of uh, companies you would get that you would get that over a long period in time so uh, and by the way that's not what you can say for many other asset classes around the world we do a lot of global investing without being very precise getting a 10 to 12 percent compounding in indian rupee uh, is not uh, to be kind of trifled with so very important and and hence uh, uh, some allocation should go there uh, of course with that you have to uh, bear the volatility but you know the history suggests that if your holding period is long enough 18 months two years um, three years you know you have practically uh, no risk of at least losing money the second component is fixed income uh, because you know, investors say that, hey, you know, if I can get 10 to 12 percent anyway in equities, why do I need fixed income? You need it because, you know, there will be volatility and you you you, you would not like to see your portfolio go down by 10, 15, 20 percent at any given point in time, which it can happen if 100 percent of it is in equity. So you need fixed income because it provides defensibility in fixed income. Also, the long term trend is for the rates to come down. Uh, the the country we we feel that uh, for secular growth in the country uh, the interest rates have to be much lower than what it is today the the borrowing costs for the companies will have to come down for them to be competitive in in domestic market and, and international market so the the yields will continue to come down I think you know seven to eight percent is a fair assessment of uh, what you can generate in fixed income uh, over a long period in time with a mix of various credit uh, uh, companies, so double A, triple A, as well as a little bit of single A, a mix of that seven to eight percent is what you can expect. And then the third category is uh, what I um, uh, call market neutral, where you are picking asset classes which are uncorrelated to equity and, and bond market. Uh, there is now there are lots of uh, uh, products or, or asset classes emerging. Gold continues to be a very important asset class there. Uh, uh, provides uh, uh, hedge to the portfolio, provides defensibility to the, to the portfolio. Uh, some allocation to that is important. Uh, now, uh, REIT in India, the real estate, which also is another in, in, uh, inflation-adjusted asset class. and But, of course, for obvious reasons, doing directly is highly inefficient uh, uh, investing money in real estate. Of course, Indian investors have been investing a lot of money there. But now it is available in securitized form. So REIT is um, uh, is another asset class there. You have um, you have some arbitrage products. You have anything that doesn't correlate directly with equities and bond market movement is uh, uh, classifies to be there. So those are the three asset classes. You got to really uh, uh, put a layer of risk management. Uh, be safe uh, in picking these uh, these instruments. But if done right. Uh, the right combination of these three asset classes have uh, the potential to generate significant risk-adjusted return uh, over a long period in time without too much of volatility. Understood. That's very helpful, Atul. Third and final question, and this goes out specifically to our uh, to our NRI listeners because I keep on getting questions uh, from them. Do you have any, you know, uh, let's say specific tips for them? Because 
the kind of questions I get are twofold. One is, you know, sitting in US or Europe or Asia, wherever they are, what all can they really invest in in India? I mean, they're obviously in, investing in stuff in their home country, which would be, like I said, US, Europe or Asia. But if they want to invest in India, one, any advice there on what they should be looking at? And two, the tax angle. You know, what are tax efficient ways for them to manage their India assets? Yeah. So, uh, Anupam, I mean, there is another interesting angle. So one is, of course, NRI is looking from outside into India. But one aspect we didn't touch, which, uh, you know, we we thought, think a lot about and, and we do a lot of work is Indians investing abroad. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's become a big trend, apparently. That's That's, Yeah, so that's a big channel. And and we because we fundamentally believe uh, and I'll come to your specific question, uh, but I'll just touch on this, that uh, we fundamentally believe that Indian families have to globalize a lot more than what they are today. Right. And again, like I said, technology and use of technology was one uh, tenet of us uh, founding the business at Validus. Uh, The other is uh, around helping Indian families globalize. And uh, there also you need uh, high quality advice to be able to really venture out um, uh, outside India. It's not just about buying Apple and, and, and Google, but but again, it's about building a diversified portfolio. And how do you do that? And, and what are the right products? What are what, what are the products that have tested the time uh, uh, over a long period in time, etc. So, you know, again, a simple asset allocation, etc. could be applied there as well. Uh, but very, very uh, interesting opportunities. But more importantly... Uh, almost, I would say, a necessity for every Indian family to look uh, to put some money in non-Indian uh, rupee um, uh, product uh, or, or, or asset class because Indian rupee will continue to have depreciating bias. And in fact, we, we go to a point where we say that, look, long-term wealth sustenance is just not possible if you have all your money in single market, single currency. Right. So that's that's very important aspect uh, for, for Indian investors to think of. Uh, and again, I, we put that also in the third bucket of uh, more market neutral when it comes to Indian market, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, Indian market related um, correlation. So, sure. so very important to do that. Now, coming to the NRIs, um, uh, like I said, India is is a land of entrepreneurs. The, the asset class uh, uh, for Indian equities is something that uh, is unique for anywhere around the world, right? I mean, you know, you do have... Um, you do have, uh, you know, if you had picked technology companies in the US or, or or China, consumer plus tech companies, you would have done very well in the last 10, 15 years. But, you know, you needed to be right. There are hardly any markets where on a broad based basis, the fundamental demographic and fundamental economic activity lends itself to 10 to 12 percent growth rate. Right. So Indian equities by far is an asset class that every NRI, every Every investor around the world, in fact, should have in their portfolio. Indian debt is of uh, not significant value because, uh, you know, the NRIs as well as other global investors have ability to leverage uh, and borrow at at very cheap uh, uh, cost. So, you know, the the trade of borrowing at 0.5% and investing in a 3% debt uh, will still give them 5-6% dollar returns. So, you know, there is limited value in investing in, in Indian debt. But Indian equities uh, with that kind of natural compounding rate is is definitely a, a very, very good asset class. And we have seen that with foreign investors interest in Indian equities as an asset class. I mean, as you know, from 2009, 2010 onwards, um, I mean, 45 percent of the, the Indian uh, stock market float 
is owned by foreign investors and that's the lure of of indian equities and and the compounding that it can deliver so nris or for that matter any global investor should not uh, be untouched with that and so so that's clearly um, uh, a, a very strong uh, endorsement uh, that i would have for for indian equities as an asset class in terms of taxation also uh, i mean it's it's the the money that gets invested in india for nris they have to pay taxes uh, on that money in india so you know uh, the same long term uh, 10% short term 15% uh, capital gains which is very efficient it's not uh, too much it's not too tax inefficient uh, for for nris they will have to file taxes in india on the money on the gains that they make in india uh, on 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 equities investing so there is no uh, other way to sort of go around it um, uh, especially for nris foreign investors Uh, do have uh, an opportunity to invest through FII vehicles, etc. But uh, but NRIs have a privilege given to them. I I call it a privilege uh, mm-hmm. given to them to be able to invest in Indian markets directly and and buy whichever stock they want and participate mm-hmm. in the in the growth story of India. So they should do that. And and taxation is less of an issue because yes, it was you know uh, the long term taxation was zero before. It's ten percent now, but it's not prohibitive by any stretch of imagination. Fantastic, Atul. Thank you so much for doing this for our listeners, folks. That was the wealth management special. Uh, I had me Atul Singh, CEO at Validus Wealth. You want to know more about Validus? They are their website is validuswealth.com. That's V A L I D U S W E A L T H dot com. Atul Singh, CEO at Validus Wealth. Atul, thank you so much for doing this for our listeners. Sure. Thank you, Anupam. My pleasure. And listeners, if you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on IBM Network. You can listen to us on the IBM Podcast app or ibmpodcast.com. You can also follow us on our social media. We are IBM Podcasts on Twitter and Instagram. You want to reach out to me? I'm BPP on Twitter. And thank you so much for listening to Pesa Pesa. No material on the show should be considered as financial advice. The material on the show is for informational purposes only. Please consult a financial advisor before taking any investment decision.